now it's time for Nostalgia Town, where we speak with well-known older Australians about the journey they took that makes them the person they are today. You're listening to Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century, with me, Lex Marinos, and... I'm Patricia Ramflett. Are you known better as Little Patty, or also known as Little Patty? <laughs> I certainly am. Because sometimes people call me Little Patty. Do they? Yes, I know, and I, I get thoroughly confused about it. <laughs> anyway, Patricia. Yes? Uh, our guest uh, today is Emeritus Professor Ron McCallum, AO, one of the country's most respected industrial and discrimination lawyers and a prominent human rights advocate. In 1993, he became the first totally blind person appointed to a full professorship at an Australian university. Professor of Industrial Law at the University of Sydney, he went on to serve as Dean of their law school. A leading light in the disabled community, Ron chaired the United Nations Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Professor, welcome to the show. Do you mind if I call you Ron? Would that be all right? Oh, please call me Ron. The only people that called me Professor were teachers at my children's school during parent-teacher meetings. (laughs) I had to be defence counsellor when the teacher would say, he uses playground voice inside, and I would say, do you mean he's only being ebullient? Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, please, when I was dean, the students all called me Ron, so sure. Okay. Well, you lost your vision soon after birth and grew up during the 1950s. What was, what was it like for, for people without sight in, the, in that period? In that period, it wasn't like it is today. We had no way of reading print. There were no computer programs. There were no computers, really. And very many blind people were given manual jobs. Um, many worked in sheltered workshops. In fact, the, the school I went to in Melbourne, there was a wire fence separating us from the factory where many blind people worked. So I became very clear, even at the age of six, that life could be bleak unless I worked hard. You were raised in the Melbourne suburb of Hampton, and what was family life like at that time? Family life was complicated. My father was born in 1890, and he put his age down to go to World War II, I guess because he wasn't in World War One, And he, he came back with what I now know as PTSD, uh, he was violent towards my mum. Um, oh, dear. He, was, he drank a lot. He really never picked me up. I had two older brothers. We lived in a small commission house, two-bedroom house. Um, we didn't have a car. You had to walk to the shops. My mum would put us all in the stroller, three of us. So, yeah, I, I learned uh, – I grew up fairly poor. Um, mm. <clears throat> I didn't have a relationship with my dad, and um, he died when I was about 14. And I went, I was looked after by Melbourne Legacy. So it was a a fairly solid upbringing, and I still Mm. have memories of domestic violence. Um, I'm sorry to hear that you've had that experience, Ron. Your your memoir is called Born at the Right Time. Why that title? What was was the right time? What was being born at the right time mean? Well, it, it meant that I was born at perhaps the best time for blind people to be born. I mentioned the difficulties in the 50s in sheltered workshops. But um, I was able to go to university uh, with the help of the repatriation department, um, and I used tape recorders to survive. And then came technology of computers in the 1980s, and what were invented were programs which would read out in synthetic speech what was on the computer screen, and then programs that you would scan a, a book on and the 
program would read it to you by recognizing the letters and the words. Uh, computers have altered all our lives, but I think for we disabled people, and I speak now of those of us without sight, um, they've altered our lives fundamentally. I could not have been a, a dad, a husband, a dean of a law school, and later a chair of a United Nations committee without this technology. And now it's all in the iPhone that I'm holding in my right hand talking to you. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm the first group of blind people that can actually read, print independently. And we blind go back to the caves. We've been with us. You know, Homer, they say, was blind and he Mm. memorized the Iliad and the Odyssey. But I'm able to read, print. This is a huge gap. And no one before has been able to do that. So, yes, born at the right time, now we understand that uh, fabulous title. Um, when your family consisted at, uh, you were with your mum and a brother? or Two brothers. And did they make special allowances for you or were, was it all just taken for granted? Well, that's our brother. He does terrific things, but he's just a bit different from us. Because- yeah, I think they, they think they just took me for granted. Um, mm. My mother was 40 when I was born, so in some ways she was a bit like a grandmother. And nice. she was determined that, um, as she would say, uh, the world doesn't owe you anything and uh, you've got to make your own way. Gosh. And that's the philosophy I've had, you know, you, you make your own way. And didn't it work well? It did work well. I've been very fortunate indeed. And in many ways, many of the teachers I had in primary and secondary school um, allowed me to get to university. I, you know, I think we baby boomers, perhaps everybody remembers our worst and our best teachers. Yes. I think we all have that, mm. <laughs> we all have that, that thing. Mm. So, yeah, so, you know, I, it was a little bit different for me. Ron, you, you mentioned the technology that is amazing now and, and fantastic and, and that you are the first generation to grow up with it. But it feels to me that there is still work to be done in terms of a society's reaction to disability. Absolutely. We could make all books accessible. I think there's about 5% are accessible unless you use special equipment. We could say that um, every book that's published should have a text version which could be accessed by persons with vision loss. Um, we could do that. Although attitudes towards people with disability have changed, there are still situations where we're discriminated against. Um, the labor force participation rate of people with disability, that's people between 15 or 16 and 65 in the workforce, is about 53%. For able-bodied people, it's about 78 to 80%. Mm. Our figure of 53% has not moved for 20 years. Mm. So we still have a a long way to go. Mm. I was indeed very fortunate that after doing graduate work, I came back at the age of 25 and received a tenured job at a university. Um, That was highly unusual 50 years ago. I didn't think enough about it at the time. Just incidentally, what drew you to law, Ron? Why why was the law your chosen field? And may I ask why industrial law? Oh, okay. Well, (laughs) the, the first thing would be I wanted to be when I was in high school, I thought, what can I do? Um, I, I, you know, all the clerical jobs went up to me. I thought, I would like to be a high school teacher. I reckon I could teach history and English. I loved history, I loved English. But I overshot the marks. 
and got into both law schools in Melbourne at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we, we had a family discussion because lawyers were the other side, you know, they represented capital. <laughs> <laughs> the consensus was, give it a year, and then you can always go back to be a law Well, I did reasonably well in the first year, and I stayed on. As for industrial law, in fourth year, I had the choice. I wanted a, a day off, and I had the choice in the timetable of either doing family law or industrial law. And in those days, family law was all about proving adultery, you know, bed sheets. I thought, I, thought, I don't need this, right? <laughs> and I did industrial law, and I was taught by a man called Harry Glasbeck, a, a Holocaust survivor. And suddenly it made sense to me, leaving aside our most intimate relationships, um, the rules that govern what we can and cannot do at work are central to what we do. Most of us spend most of our waking hours at work. And it combined my interest in history. And I decided um, at the age of 21 that I was going to become a labor lawyer. And uh, I would have loved to have been a barrister, but there was no technology in those days. And I thought I would be showered with documents at the last minute because they'd be after a win and a dollar. And so I thought, what could I do? And I thought, if I became an academic, I would have read the stuff beforehand. So I was a Commonwealth scholar and went to Canada and studied uh, industrial law and then came back and I've been teaching it for almost 50 years. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Ron, your achievements are many. Are you extremely proud, like I'm proud when I read it, that you chaired the United Nations Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities? Yes, yes. Uh, I was asked to be Australia's candidate we were one of the first countries to ratify the Disability Convention, and the Attorney General was one of my former students, Robert McClellan, and the Parliamentary Secretary for Disabilities was another one of my former students, Bill Shorten. <laughs> <laughs> but they had to get it cleared with the disability community. You have to consult with the disability community, and the disability community were very happy. Um, <clears throat> and after a year on the committee, they, they couldn't agree on a chair, and um, they sent me out of the room. And they asked me to come back and they said, we've had a discussion and we could all come to a consensus on you. I think because I was not interested in other disability jobs, I had my own job teaching. Mm. And as a lawyer, it seemed to me what we needed was to push forward with our rules and our fair procedures. And I think they felt I would be a fair chair. Mm. And so <clears throat> I ended up chairing our dialogue with the People's Republic of China and all sorts of things. It was quite extraordinary. For a, for a boy from, from downtown Ant, it was, it was quite amazing. <laughs> you must have had to pinch yourself from time to time. Yes, yes. Ron, can we just go back to your formative years, your non-academic pursuits? How did you uh, connect with popular culture? Did you did you go to the were the movies accessible to you? Did they were they meaningful for you? Were was music more your go? What did you do for fun? Well, I played blind cricket from the age of thirteen, right. um, which was which was invented in sheltered workshops in the thirties by blind people. They would make a ball out of cane and put in a bit of lead and beer bottle tops. They had plenty of those. And they would make a noise when the ball bounced along the ground. Now there's electronic balls and stuff. So I played that. That was great fun. I was a good bowler, terrible bat. I'd just swing at anything and miss. Um, <laughs> love music. I'm, I'm uh, of the generation of the Beatles fans. So I, oh, you know, wow. I, in fact, I still have 
the first six albums of the Beatles on my iPhone permanently. Wow. Have you got the rare singles? Like, have you got the German German version of She Loves You? Yes, yes, yes. And I want to hold your hand. Yeah, that's right. And I've got, you know, the first Love Me Do when Ringo Starr wasn't allowed to drum and they brought in a professional drummer. So I'm still a great Beatles fan. In some ways, they represented um, a freshness and uh, a coming alive of our generation in many ways. In fact, I don't think there's been a good pop record since 66. Ah, good on you. Ah, nor do we. (laughs) My my children would disagree. (laughs) Uh, That's when um, when Patricia stopped recording. Ah, that's right. (laughs) That's right. I think uh, movies, to me, were they needed to have something for me that was less visual. For example, I enjoyed, a long time ago now, Lawrence of Arabia because it had fantastic music, even though it was scenic. I enjoyed Dr. Zhivago. I enjoyed a lot of documentary films. Television was very limited in the 60s, and you didn't see that many documentaries, and you had to go to movie theatres. And I didn't go all that often. Mm -hmm. Music was my great love. How did you meet your wife, Mary? Oh, um, can I say at a, a, a dinner of lawyers who were drinking a lot? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'll do it. <laughs> it's up to you what you say, you know, but we're not going to get you into trouble. You're going to get yourself into trouble. <laughs> well, I, I was. there was a dinner from friends of mine. I talked with Sue and her husband, and Sue had met Mary walking across Melbourne University grounds and said, I'm short of... of Women's night, which you come to dinner. So I'm sitting at dinner next to a, a person from Oxford who shall remain nameless, who was unbelievably boring. And <laughs> there was this nice voice of this woman across. So I walked around and I said, Hi, I'm Ron McCallum. And she said, You're obviously a retro lentil fibroplasia kid. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was was enough to fall in love immediately. (laughs) That's right, which which meant that I had been a premature birth and had had pure oxygen, which had lost my sight. So I said, well, Mm. smarty pants, how on earth would you know anything like that? And she said, I'm the daughter of Australia's first professor of ophthalmology. Um, So we got along that night. And then um, a year later, um, she was an associate in the courts, and some of my students were associates. There was a legal convention, and they said, we always invite our old teacher, Ron, to come along. And she said, oh, I remember him. I'll pick him up. Mm. And uh, she said um, at the dinner that I danced so badly, she couldn't believe anyone would get up and dance like that. And we were engaged (laughs) six weeks later. Fred Astaire and Mary. (laughs) And I I, I think I I danced so much because my mother was dying, and I thought, screw it, I'm having a nice time. If I want to dance, I don't really care what people think. Yeah. 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 Your family, your lovely wife, um, who (laughs) knew so much about you immediately, which was fabulous. I'm imagining that over the years you've had several assistance dogs. Do you still have one? I'd, I've never had an assistance dog. Ah. I've never had a guide dog because I've sat mainly in law school ivory towers. Uh-huh. But when I sort of semi-retired 10 years ago, our vet had found an assistance dog who'd failed the tests. <laughs> and he said he might do you. And so he, he's our very special dog and he sleeps on our bed. <laughs> unless, my wife, unless my wife shoots him off. 
Mary's mm-hmm. going to America in a few days' time, and he, he will sleep on our bed in her place. <laughs> They'll have open <laughs> run. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> and what about what about now, Ron? What what do you do recreationally these days now that you've got less of a, a teaching load? And how do you fill your time in? Well, I've just written a chapter of a book with a group of us writing on employment law for the Institute of Employment Rights. I read a lot of novels. I like a lot of crime novels, which sounds terrible. I still keep up with the law. I like drinking red wine, but my wife says after my injury, I've got to stop that. That would kill me if I stopped. (laughs) I hope to get back to walking. I used to walk my dog every day. And, and mm-hmm. as I've said to you, I've had a fall, but when I, that, I'll be back walking a dog. I have a, um, a trainer every week um, to do exercise, um, mm-hmm. and I have an exercise bike, and I enjoy um, going out to dinner. I enjoy seeing friends. It's all a bit strange now because Mary's now at work. For, uh, she's a, a law professor now. You've got to have someone working. And um, so I'm often <laughs> I'm often at home a lot. So you're responsible for having dinner and uh, cleaning the house. Oh yeah, well I've always done the laundry. Oh, there you go. Um, in fact, when we moved houses a few years ago, I had to get a new washing machine, and it took me a while to find one that I could work. Hmm. So many of them had touch screens that I couldn't work. I needed hmm. one with buttons. And I think for all of us, we should. Think about universal design, whether we're seniors, whether we're pregnant ladies, whether we're a child, so that we can all use these things. I find my iPhone is perhaps my greatest companion listening to the radio. can read me the mail. I can use my camera. I also use programs like Be My Eyes. When um, you call up Be My Eyes and they put you in touch with someone at the other end of their iPhone, And my wife had gone out and I was having lunch. I was looking for a a bit of a consultancy and I'd forgotten to ask my wife which tie to wear. So I put a whole lot of ties on my bed and I called up Be My Eyes and I said, look, can you help me work a tie? And I turned the camera around. I was wearing my suit with a shirt and I said, can you find a tie? And I went over to the bed. I'd have to clean that up. And she said, second from the left. I said, thank you. I said, can I ask where you are at the moment? And she said, you're not supposed to. I said, I know. She said, oh, I'm in a Singapore bank, but things are quiet, so I thought I'd help you out. Ah, what a great line. And you were born at the right time. You certainly were, were after hearing all of those wonderful occasions. Ron, thanks so, thanks so much for talking to us. That's a pleasure. And, uh, Ron, thank you so much for talking to us. It's been uh, such a pleasure for us. That's a pleasure, Lex. A pleasure, Patricia. Thank you very much, Ron. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Bye. 